This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Al Jazeera America, Economic Update with Richard Wolf, The Young Turks, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and activism from fairvote.org. And you're welcome for giving you two weeks to recover before airing this episode. Last night, against all the odds in the world, Tom Butt was elected mayor of Richmond, California, working-class, blue-collar city just northeast of San Francisco, uh, where the oil company Chevron has operated a huge and sometimes troubled refinery for over a century now. A couple years ago, there was a huge explosion and fire at the Richmond refinery. It sent more than 15,000 local people to the hospital. Uh, And if you didn't like the time in 2012 when it caught fire and blew up, there was also the time it caught fire and blew up in 1999. And if you didn't like the time in 1999 when it caught fire and blew up, there was also the time in 1989 when it caught fire and blew up. That Chevron refinery in Richmond, California, has been kind of a nightmare. And when the latest explosion and fire and thousands of people going to the hospital disaster happened there a couple of years ago, the city council and the mayor in that little city in the more impoverished part of the San Francisco Bay Area, folks in that little city, their elected officials decided they wanted more assurances from Chevron. They wanted more safety precautions. They did not want to just wait for this refinery to catch fire and blow up again in their little town. The mayor and the city council started pushing Chevron. And so Chevron decided that they would buy themselves a new mayor and a new city council in that town. Buoyed by the Supreme Court's decision that corporations can spend infinitely, uh, not only on federal elections, but also on little local elections anywhere in the country, the giant oil company Chevron decided that they would spend infinitely in Richmond. They would spend infinitely to elect their own preferred slate of pro-Chevron city councilors in Richmond and a pro-Chevron new mayor. In Richmond, they dumped more than three million dollars into the little local elections in this town to try to elect three new city councilors and to elect their own preferred candidate over Tom Butt. Tom Butt raised something like forty thousand dollars total for his campaign uh, as of mid-October. Chevron dumped more than three million dollars into that town to defeat him. And last night, Tom Butt won. He beat Chevron. All three of the city councilors who Chevron spent all those millions of dollars to defeat, they all won. Chevron had more than $220 billion in revenue last year. They're one of the largest and richest corporations ever in the history of corporations. Chevron spent millions of dollars to buy themselves their own little city government in this small town last night. Their opponents had no way to compete monetarily with that. And nevertheless... Those little Davids fighting that Goliath, they whomped Chevron in every single race in the city that Chevron was trying to buy. And now Richmond is going to have a mayor who, one of the richest companies in the history of the earth, has emphatically not bought and paid for. And his name is Tom Butt! And that happened last night. That happened last night. A lot happened last night. Last night, voters in the deep, deep red state of Nebraska, they had the chance to vote on whether they wanted to raise the minimum wage in that state. They voted yes by an 18-point margin in Nebraska. In Alaska, they voted to raise the minimum wage there by a 38-point margin. 
It was on the ballot in Arkansas, too, where it won by 32 points. Even in South Dakota, voters chose to raise the minimum wage, and they chose that option by a double-digit margin. There were two states where personhood was on the ballot last night. This is the pretty radical anti-abortion legislation that is favored by a whole bunch of the new Republican senators who were elected last night. Joni Ernst in Iowa, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Tom Tillis in North Carolina, Tom Cotton in Arkansas, Steve Daines in Montana. They all support personhood. This radical anti-abortion approach, which would ban all abortion in every circumstance and some popular forms of contraception as well. But voters last night were asked directly in two states if they wanted to vote for a personhood law statewide. In North Dakota, it lost by 28 points. In Colorado, the numbers are still coming in, but so far it is losing by 30 points. Personhood lost by a huge margin in both states where people had the chance to vote on it last night. Last night, voters in two states and in Washington, D.C., also had a chance to vote to legalize marijuana for recreational use, like Colorado and, uh, did in, in 2012 in, in Washington state. In Oregon last night, they voted on it as well. They voted to legalize pot in Oregon, and it won by 12 points. In Alaska, they voted on it there as well, and it won by four points. In Washington, D.C., legalizing pot won by 37 points. In four places last night, there was a measure on the ballot to give people paid sick leave from work. It was on the ballot statewide in Massachusetts. It was also on the ballot in Oakland, California, and in Trenton, New Jersey, and in Montclair, New Jersey. Passed in all four of those places. When Rhode Island elected Gina Raimondo to be their new governor last night, it was the first time ever that the state of Rhode Island had elected a woman governor, and it was the first time that Rhode Island had elected a Democratic governor in two decades. In Massachusetts, when the congressional results came in last night, Massachusetts hit 100 straight congressional elections in which the state has elected Democrats to go to Congress. The Massachusetts Democrat who had the hardest fight on his hands last night, but who still won, was Iraq War veteran Seth Moulton, who volunteered for multiple combat tours in Iraq despite his own political opposition to the Iraq War. During his campaign for Congress, the Boston Globe caught Seth Moulton not being fully truthful with voters about his war record. What he didn't tell voters was about the medals he had won for bravery and heroism during his time in combat. He didn't think that's the sort of thing you should brag about, so he didn't bring it up. Seth Moulton is now a congressman from Massachusetts 6th District. In Washington State last night, voters decided that they would not be bamboozled by the gun lobby. Uh, they voted in Washington State last night that you should have to have a background check if you want to buy a gun. They voted for background checks, and they voted against another measure that was purposely put on the ballot to confuse people, which would have banned the same background checks that the state just agreed to pass. Washington State voters were not bamboozled. Remember our old friend Scott Brown? He lost. He lost a Massachusetts Senate seat to Elizabeth Warren two years ago. Uh, then he moved north to his vacation home to try to run again for the Senate from a different state. Uh, he lost last night. He is the first person in U.S. history to lose two United States Senate seats to two different women. Scott Brown, feminist icon. New Hampshire re-elected Senator Jean Shaheen over Scott Brown last night. And at the same time, they re-elected their Democratic governor, who's also a woman, Maggie Hassan after some of the worst gun massacres in our nation's history. After Newtown and after the Aurora, Colorado movie theater massacre, the governors in the two states where those tragedies happened, the governors in those two states, in Colorado and in Connecticut, they defied the gun lobby. Those two governors, after those incidents, they stepped up 
to create background checks for gun sales in their states and to pass other sort of lowest common denominator gun safety laws. And of course, the gun lobby went nuts. The gun lobby swore revenge. The gun lobby screamed that it would be the end of each of those governors. Last night, even on a huge night for Republicans, including um, in the governor's races, last night, both that Colorado governor, John Hickenlooper, and that Connecticut governor, Dan Malloy, who, who the NRA said they would have for lunch, both of those governors were reelected last night. In Colorado, incidentally, who John Hickenlooper beat was the guy who said he wanted to ban the IUD because in his mind, certain kinds of birth control make you basically a walking, talking abortion clinic. You're having abortions constantly. And so Bob Beaupre wanted to ban the IUD in Colorado. Bob Beaupre lost. John Hickenlooper beat him last night. In Alaska, in an effort to beat Republican incumbent Governor Sean Parnell, uh, the Democrat and the Independent, who had been splitting the vote against Sean Parnell, uh, decided in September that they would set aside their differences and instead run together as a unity ticket, a unity independent and Democratic ticket against the incumbent Republican. Now, NBC News has not yet projected a winner in that Alaska governor's race. But with 73% of the vote in, the independent and Democratic unity ticket is ahead there uh, by roughly 1% at this point. For the first time ever last night, the Republican Party elected a black Republican woman to go to Congress. For the first time since the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, a state in the Deep South voted to elect an African-American senator in South Carolina Republican Tim Scott. West Virginia sent its first ever woman to the United States Senate last night. Iowa sent its first ever woman to either House of Congress last night. Seriously, Iowa? Seriously? 2014? In San Francisco last night, they voted to raise the local minimum wage to $15 an hour. And the sky did not fall. In Nebraska, the aforementioned deep, deep red state of Nebraska, a Republican incumbent congressman there ran an ad that blamed his Democratic opponent for the murders committed by this tattooed face guy. It, it was the Willie Horton ad, but worse. That Republican congressman who ran that ad in Nebraska, he lost his seat last night. In Nebraska, Republican Lee Terry lost his seat. He'll be replaced by a Nebraska Democrat named Brad Ashford. And, and here, here is my favorite what does that mean development from last night. If Rand Paul wants to run for president in 2016, Rand Paul better be sure he's going to win. Because apparently he's going to have to give up his seat in the United States Senate if he wants to do that. Republicans in the last few years have, have taken over basically all of the state legislative chambers in the South, uh, except for Kentucky. In Kentucky, the House is still held by Democrats. Kentucky state law right now says you can't run for two federal offices at the same time. Rand Paul was first elected to the Senate in 2010. That means his Senate seat will be up in 2016. 2016 is also the year he wants to run for another federal office. He wants to also run for president of the United States. Under Kentucky law, he cannot do both. Can't run for both at once. The Democrats in charge of the Kentucky State House have said they have no intention of changing that state law just so Rand Paul can have the job security of keeping his Senate seat while he also runs for president. Republicans thought they would win that last state legislative chamber in the South last night. They thought that they would take the Kentucky House away from the Democrats last night. And they want to do that for a million reasons. But Rand Paul desperately needs Republicans to take that House in Kentucky. But last night, the Kentucky House stayed Democratic. Its partisan makeup was unchanged overall in last night's elections. The Democrats are still in charge of that chamber. 
And however much you agree or disagree with all the Beltway gushing over how interesting Rand Paul is, uh, the, the decision that Rand Paul now has to make about giving up his Senate seat if he really does want to run for president, that really is the first truly inarguably interesting thing about the prospect of Rand Paul running for president. Or maybe not running for president. And that just happened last night. That all just happened last night. And I think that's it in terms of straws to grasp, <laughs> silver linings to spy in the clouds if you are not a Republican and you're trying to figure out what those election results mean last night. I, I think what I just gave you is the entire universe of things that just happened in the election last night that are not about the Republicans winning almost everything and everywhere they wanted to win. I mean, it is possible that there's like a Democrat somewhere who got a nice call from her mom last night, or maybe somebody somewhere found a dollar on the sidewalk. I mean, it's possible. I might have missed a, a micron of the non-Republican silver lining uh, in last night's election results. Uh, but really, I think when I just ran down, I think that's it. Nearly every poll predicts record low turnout in congressional and local races across the country tonight. And of all registered adults, fewer than half are expected to actually participate in tonight's midterm elections. Let's look at what effect that has on the country. First of all, turnout in the United States is always awful. There are more than 239 million people eligible to vote. Roughly 145 million chose not to during 2010's midterm elections. That means that more than 58% of eligible voters simply didn't vote. So who did vote? Well, in 2010, only 90,600,000 eligible voters showed up to be heard. That number doesn't mean much on its own. So let me describe it another way. Bear with me here. It's a, a little weird. When only 90 million Americans vote, it's like another country has suddenly formed within our, within our own, a country one-third as large as the United States. And I'm not just talking about a matter of size here. In this smaller country, the politics are different. Because when I say another country, I'm serious. It really is like another country. For one thing, it's a wider country. It's also made up of richer, older people, and they decide the fate of a more diverse, poorer group who do not vote. Our country would, in fact, be very different if everyone who could cast a ballot did so. Groups like the Pew Research Center have, in fact, studied this. They found that, for one thing, the Democratic Party would enjoy much more support. More than half of all non-voters identify or lean toward Democrats. Compare that to those who lean Republican, just 27% of non-voters. This is why Democrats have so much more to gain by getting new voters to the polls. Compare only 21 million people who lean Republican and don't vote to the 40 million or more non-voting Americans, nearly twice as much, who lean Democratic. There are simply far more potential Democrats in the United States than there are potential Republicans. Eligible voters did vote. <clears throat> The make-or-break political issues also could be vastly different. Let's consider income for a moment. 32% of Americans make less than $30,000 a year. And that group makes up 
more than half of people who do not vote. That's more than 35 million people hovering just above the poverty line and not being heard tonight. Now, imagine, John, the impact if they did vote. As it is, issues that most directly affect the poor, minimum wage, equal pay, social security, health care, those things are being decided by those who are far less affected by these issues. I want to talk about the larger economic questions raised by this election. So let's begin. I think one of the most important ways to start talking about the election on October, excuse me, on November 4th was the following. That something on the order of 27%, if I have the numbers right, 27% of the people eligible to vote that is, they're old enough, they're citizens, they haven't committed any kind of offense that disqualifies you from voting. If you look at the total number of people qualified to vote, about 27% of those people chose to vote. The overwhelming majority of the American people weren't interested enough or had some other reason why they did not vote. Some of them were intimidated. The Republican Party took great efforts in a variety of places to make it more difficult to vote. You had to have various kinds of identity. You had to, uh, identity pieces. You had to show them all kinds of obstacles. And that's for a simple reason. The statistics of American voting have been crystal clear for many, many years. That in general, the people, the, the Democrats win if we have more people voting and the Republicans if we have less. Because the people who are not so sure they want to go to the polls are those Democrats. So that if the Democrats want to win, they have to create a motivation, a fairly special motivation, to get out extra numbers of people. To cross the 50% threshold is always the goal and very difficult in this country. Usually only happens when there's a president, and even then it's difficult. Okay, what's the lesson here? Barack Obama came into office in the elections of 2008 and stayed in in the election of 2012 because, first of all, in 2008 and to a much lesser degree in 2012, he inspired large numbers of Americans who normally don't vote. And how do we know they normally don't vote? Well, I just told you, they didn't vote this last week. They didn't vote in the midterm elections four years ago, etc., they don't normally vote. Well, Obama inspired them. He had a slogan of hope and change, some of you may remember, and it was the thought crossed the minds, particularly of younger people, that maybe, maybe, finally, there would be a politician who would give you a reason to have hope that there might be real change. One of the reasons the election came out the way it did this last week was because Mr. Obama and the Democrats systematically demonstrated to the millions of particularly younger people who were enthusiastic for them 
that they had misplaced their confidence that there would be very little change and therefore no way to sustain hope. And the results this week are the sign of what has happened. Nor should we be surprised. We have a history now going back a long time of presidents who come into office promising a change, a difference, a renewed something or other, and then go out of office four or eight years later with a popularity rating somewhere in the basement because everybody has realized it was all hype, it was all empty promises, it didn't amount to much. Does that mean there are no differences between the two parties? No, there are some. And for some people, those differences matter. But I think for most people, they don't, because that's why they don't go. For them, it just doesn't matter. That the issues that they feel strongly about are not being addressed by either party, or are being addressed in a way that make you think they're just lying, or they're just talking for the votes, or something else that makes you turn away in revulsion, in disgust, and after a while you don't pay any attention, you lose interest, all the logical outcomes. Is there a basis for this attitude on the majority of the people, that for the basic things of life it doesn't matter? Well, I think if you look at the economics of this election, as I'm about to do with you, I think you'll see that there's quite a bit of justification. Let me show that to you. Every poll, every questionnaire, countless radio and television programs, this one included, have discovered that the American people are deeply concerned about the growing and extreme inequality of wealth and income in the United States. Large majorities believe that that's not good. Large majorities believe that we ought to have a much narrower gap between rich and poor than the one that has been getting wider and wider. Did the Republicans or the Democrats offer any kind of basic approach to solving that problem? And the answer is an unequivocal no. Neither party seems to be willing or interested in doing anything to stop this inequality that's gotten worse. The Republicans might be considered more happy that it's getting more unequal than the Democrats, but this is a degree of relative happiness, relative inaction in the face of this inequality. So I think a person who looked at these two parties and these two candidates looking for someone to really come forward and make a commitment to a serious set of steps that would do something about inequality, that would be a person who could be understood to turn away from this election choice in most cases and not participate. An exception might be if you were in an area, and there weren't many, where there was a third or fourth party candidate who actually said something about this, a Green Party candidate or something like that. But in most places where we vote in this country, there was no such option. Here's a second economic issue that Americans are deeply concerned about and have been for half a century. The exodus of jobs. We are losing jobs to other parts of the world. We are permitting major employers to shut down production here and move it over there. 
to take the mon- the profits they earn and invest them over there, not here. That's a serious problem. It affects every community. I, mean, I won't again talk about Detroit, where you have seen the exodus of auto jobs leading to the collapse of a major urban area. Now in bankruptcy, Detroit is the largest bankruptcy, urban bankruptcy in American history. You'd, you'd expect a serious political campaign, <laughs> for example, the one in Michigan, to deal with the exodus of jobs. What are you going to do to really prevent that from happening? And you can't come forward with some namby-pamby, I'm going to create incentive, because that's what has been said for 50 years. You certainly have to understand an American citizen who looks at what the alternatives are, sees that neither party is very interested, and that at most you get a rehash of the very wavy commitments that you heard for 8, 16, and so on years ago, you turn away in disgust. Here's a third example. The last time we had an economic crisis on the scale of this one was in the 1930s. And in those years, one of the things the president did was the following. He created a public jobs program. That's right. The government would hire people, pay them a salary, and put them to work doing something useful. Americans built the national parks we've enjoyed for the last 75 years. Those Americans hired by the federal government did some of the first ecological reclamation projects, the Civilian Conservation Corps. They built municipal buildings, libraries. They did loads and loads of useful things that we have all benefited from while being employed and earning an income that allowed them to keep their homes, raise their children. We would have expected at the very least that the parties would put forward a program, a debate about a program for public employment. But we wouldn't have found it, would we? No candidates with a handful of exceptions, even spoke about it, let alone came up with a commitment that they could go to the voters with, elect me, I'm going to work on that from day one. So you could get a person looking at the election, knowing a little bit about American history, being disgusted by what was not offered by either party. Well, I could go on. The collapsing cities... Detroit, Cleveland, Camden, my hometown, Youngstown, Ohio, countless. What's going to be, what program is there? Are they all going to follow Detroit? Declining, sinking, decade after decade, and nobody does anything? That's it? That's what the two parties offer us? That's what they delivered on Detroit. That's what they delivered on Cleveland, on Camden, and so on. Would we be able to understand a person who walks away from looking at that disaster saying, I'm not going to participate in a farce in which I'm to choose between two candidates, neither of whom addresses any of these fundamental economic issues? Is there still a reason to prefer one to the other? Sure. There's always, when you have two non-entities, two who don't deal with the real issues, 
it's still always far possible to find one is less evil than the other. That's how many people still go, and they vote for the lesser evil. But then they really can't be surprised if nothing much changes. If this whole election business is a kind of farce, designed to deflect our interest, to get us all excited about marginal differences that don't deal with what we know are the fundamental issues. Do some of those other issues that they do bring forward matter? Sure they do. But it's hard to take a process seriously that keeps saying, no, 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 we're not going to deal with the big ones. But here, get all excited about our differences on these. Is this a system designed to bring hope? I don't think so. This is a system that smashes hope on the few occasions when it even allows it to bloom for a while, the way the first Obama campaign did. The inescapable conclusion, if you want to deal with the basic economic change that this country needs and that our political system evades and avoids, you're going to have to do one of two things. You're either going to have to build an altogether new political party that looks at this stuff and says what changes it stands for, so that for the first time, people concerned about these basic economic issues actually have a choice. Or, you're going to have to develop a movement from below, like they did in the 1930s. In those days, it was the CIO, the unions, the socialist and the communist parties. In our time, who knows who will actually do it? How many of us would have expected the Occupy Wall Street to be as successful as they were for a while? But they show the way. A movement from below, which, if it can be sustained and organized, can begin to force our political parties, even the two half-dead ones that we have, to deal with the real issues. If we don't, we will allow a smaller and smaller number of people, many of whom don't care about the basic economic issues because they don't have them. They're in the top 10% of our population. Or they're in such need and they're so sad and pressurized that even for a little difference, for that lesser evil, they'll keep going and voting, even as they complain bitterly about how little really changes. We gotta stop making changes. Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers. And that's how it's supposed to be. How can the devil take a brother if he's close to me? Uh, I let it go back to who played this kid for things change. That's the way it is. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate
perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capitalism. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. You got to make a change. It's time for us as a people to start making some changes. Let's change the way we eat. Let's change the way we live. And let's change the way we treat each other. Now, if you think the elections were bad for the Democrats at the national level, wait till you get a load of them at the state level. Bloodbath doesn't begin to describe it. So, state capitals across the country will be more Republican, uh, this is according to the Associated Press, than at any point since the Roaring Twenties when victorious legislators and governors take office next year. The Roaring Twenties, what happened after the Roaring Twenties? Anybody remember when the Republicans were this strong last time? It probably wasn't a crash or anything. Anyway, uh, Republicans will have full control of at least 29 state legislatures, according to the conference. Uh, the party's largest total since 1928. Wait, anybody, hold on now. Anybody remember what happened after 1928? Yeah, probably nothing bad will happen. Okay, uh, the GOP will hold at least 32 governorships, including uh, newly won offices in traditionally Democratic Illinois, Maryland, and Massachusetts. Continue to explain that nowhere in the entire nation did Democrats take over a legislative chamber previously held by Republicans. And Pennsylvania Governor Tom Corbett was the only Republican chief executive to fall to a Democratic challenger. If it wasn't for Tom Corbett, it would have been an unprecedented, clean sweep. De Democrats take over none of the Republican legislatures, and it would have been none of the governor's office if it wasn't for Corbett. Republicans, meanwhile, have flipped so many, as they explain here. Reigns of Castamere is being played all across the country. Boy, man, you walked into the wrong red wedding here, man. This is horrible. All right, now, more uh, in terms of the consequences of this. Now, if you're a Republican, you might be really psyched. So what, what, what are they going to be up to? Okay, let's find out. A day after a big election, newly emboldened Republican state leaders already were making plans Wednesday to pursue deeper tax cuts, relax business regulations, expand private school vouchers, and impose new limits on public welfare programs. Joy! Okay, yes, so if you're poor or you're middle class... You just voted to cut funding for yourself. Yay! But on the upside, at least the rich get tax cuts. How do you not see that coming? Okay, maybe that's what you wanted. Okay, all the good folks across the country, including Massachusetts, Massachusetts Illinois, Maryland, you all thought, you know what? The problem with this country is that the rich just don't have enough tax cuts. Let's put more Republicans in office. By the way, I know that you don't think that because very important poll during the election said that two-thirds of Americans said... The top problem was that the rich had too much, income inequality and wealth disparity. And what did you do? In response, you put Republicans in office. Well played. Okay. Republican governors or legislative leaders in uh, Maryland, Maine, New York, Texas, and West Virginia also are already talking of 
Tax cuts. Of course! What else would they be talking about? What do you think they ran on? You think they care about all the other stuff? They don't care about any of that. The only thing they care about, 90% of their agenda is tax cuts for the rich. That's what their whole point is. So the day after the election, they're like, oh yeah, whatever we said in our campaign ads about that guy's dangerous, Democrats are the worst, they're with Obama, I'm a good guy, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take care of you. That's a good one. That's a good one. Tax cuts for the rich. Let's order it up right away. All right, uh, more detail here. Um, now, we go to Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. He's got a more specific agenda. Uh, you put that gem back into office in Wisconsin. His agenda includes drug tests for people seeking food stamps or unemployment benefits and more tax cuts on top of the $2 billion he enacted during his first term. Because $2 billion in tax cuts for the rich just wasn't enough. Got to give him a little more. And if you're unemployed because of the economic crash that started under... Right, Bush, okay? And by the way, the economy has improved under Obama, right? But no, 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 the answer is you're a bum and maybe a druggie and we need to drug test you. Okay. Hey, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. If this is what you like, well, then you did the right thing. Yeah, let's crush the unemployed and the poor. They have too many of the advantages. And the poor rich people, man, they don't have enough advantages. Let's give them more. Okay, great. Now we go to David Sirota, who writes in International Business Times to talk about the legislatures, not just the governors. This is, gets even worse. As the National Conference of State Legislatures reports, uh, Democrats are now at their lowest point in state legislatures in nearly a century. In this week's election, Democrats lost their majorities in legislative chambers in Washington, Colorado, Minnesota, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, New York, and West Virginia. In all, the NCSL report that there are 67 legislative chambers controlled by the Republicans and just 29 controlled by Democrats. These are enormous numbers. I'll give you one more. Republicans gained seats in every region adding up to 375 seats to their column. That gives GOP more than 4,100 of the 7,383 legislative seats. They added 375 state seats in this election. That's not being talked about enough. Look, at the local level, there's so many important things. They're going to pursue, you know, uh, things that are... to get rid of abortion and birth control, by the way, when you kill Planned Parenthood, which most of their bills do, they say, oh, your hallways are too small, your doors are too large, whatever. They make up stuff so they close the Planned Parenthood. That's real, okay? They've passed thousands of those in red states already. They're going to pass even more. So that's coming your direction. You're going to cut welfare. You're going to cut health insurance for people. If, uh, you know, if in some states where they've already expanded Medicaid under Obamacare, they're thinking, well, now we've got a Republican governor. Maybe we roll that back. You had insurance? Psych! You don't have it anymore. All this lovely stuff is heading in your direction because what happens on the state level matters a lot. Okay? So, uh, now how did they do this? Is it just that the people of America hate the middle class and the poor? Or they think, look, I'm being unfair. I'm a progressive perspective, right? They think if we just give just a little bit more tax cuts to corporations and the rich, well, it'll trickle down on us. It'll create jobs. It's like, do you, they really believe that after all these years? I know because of the polls that they don't actually believe that. So why in the world did they vote for Republicans? Okay. The party's group that finances state legislative races, referring to the Democratic Party, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, raised just $9.3 million. That haul was dwarfed by the nearly $26 million raised by the Republican State Leadership Committee. So the Republicans at the state level, at least through those committees, spent three times as much money as the Democrats. Again, 
people talk about it in an abstract. What winds up happening in reality is that money is translated into television ads, radio ads, internet ads that tell people, oh, we're going to deliver for the middle class. We're going to do great things for you. Do they ever mention tax cuts for corporations in any of those ads? Never, never. It's a trick. That's their top priority. But they don't tell you that before the election. And then after the election, surprise, corporate tax cuts, right? But before the election, they say, oh my God, the Democrat is against God, and I'm you know, going to help you and your family, and I love families. I'm all about that. Yeah, of course. That's what the money buys you. That's why people get tricked into voting for them. Oh, the status quo is so bad. How did it get so bad? Income inequality is the number one problem. You say it's the number one problem. Even Republicans say it's the number one problem. Uh, 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 Obama. It was Obama. I don't know. I saw it on TV. It's the ad said oh, everybody agreed it was Obama. I don't, three ads said it was Obama. Only one ad said it was a Republican. So I guess it was Obama. All right. Finally, talk about democratic incompetence in their priorities. Get a load of this. To put the DLCC's fundraising total into context, consider Kentucky's election. Democratic candidate Allison Lundergren Grimes raised almost double the amount of money for her single unsuccessful U.S. Senate bid than the National Party apparatus, apparatus raised for its campaign for more than 6,000 legislative seats. So they put more money into the losing campaign of Grimes, who pretended she wasn't a Democrat in Kentucky. She, she says she wasn't even going to tell us if she voted for Obama. That loser. They put more money into her can, campaign, and she lost by, what, about 15 points or something. Then they put in all of the state races at the local level. What a terrible, terrible idea. They have more, uh, the Republicans have more money, and the Democrats are so wildly incompetent that that's why you have the record-breaking Republican legislators and, and governors that you have now. Now, I don't know if there will ever come a point when the results of those governors are so horrific that people will finally stop listening to the ads and go, Wait a minute, who am I going to believe? All these millions of dollars in ads are my lion eyes. I, look at what happened in Kansas. They reelected Brownback, even though his cuts led to gigantic deficits. They can't even fund education in Kansas anymore. He said that they wouldn't have any deficits. They had massive deficits. He said they'd create more jobs. They had less jobs. They did far worse than the average state did. And except the rich of Kansas got great tax cuts. So Brownback almost lost. But he had enough money at the end. A lot of dark money flowed into Kansas at the end. Gee, I wonder who that might be from. Perhaps the Koch brothers from Kansas. Not perhaps. I know. We did a story on it earlier. Koch brothers pour in the money. People go, I don't know. Brownback. Yeah, deregulation. This sounds great. I'm conservative. Bible. God. Yes. Brownback. Check. Oh, shit. There goes my job. What we need to do is figure out what went wrong. The Obama people basically say, 
that we ought to lower our expectations that with a democracy so broken, an economy so stagnant, a politics so incredibly rabid and partisan and corrupt, that this is as good as it gets. And in part of figuring out the bad choices that Obama made, many of which had nothing to do with Republicans, he ran his biggest applause lines at the close of the 2008 campaign were about public ethics, were about getting rid of crony capitalism. And he wasn't going to hire any lobbyists. In the end, he was hiring almost nothing but. You can go through an entire list of eight to ten proposals that read like a highlight reel of his closing stump speech. And he didn't do any of them. And the Congress had nothing to do with it. These were all things he could have done by executive order. We have to just take a look at the killing of the public option, the minimum wage, the decision not to bail out the homeowners, bail out the banks. If Obama had decided, if Democrats had decided, forget personalizing this, that they were going to bail out the homeowners instead of the banks, raise the minimum wage, and provide a public option to bring down premiums for small businesses and self-employed, Obama would be a folk hero instead of a punching bag, and the Democrats would have won yesterday. And so you know, one thing, that, that's what we need to do. So we, 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 we need to look at the whole agenda, and there's not a part of it that doesn't need to be fixed. We need to take public infrastructure and three or four major items that we decide, one of them has to address global warming, that we decide are the center of what we want and the center of the changes that need to be made, and then we need to offer to the public. And last, I just want to say there's been so much written about how much faith the public has lost in politicians. And there's been not enough written about how much faith politicians have lost in the public. That we don't trust the public to do the right thing even if they hear the right idea. James Madison said, if you don't believe in the good-heartedness of people, you can't believe in democracy. We have to realize that, you know, the question isn't what's the matter with Kansas, it's what's the matter with us. And not until we've put a real blueprint on the table and they've rejected it will I be willing to blame the public. If it comes to that, then fine. But first, I want to see us put forward a real agenda for economic justice and for economic growth and for dealing with our most pressing problems, including first among them global warming. You know, Bill, it's a fact now that people don't believe their politicians. They don't believe the Democrats. You just gave a list of campaign promises that Obama didn't fulfill. Another one was when he was on the debate saying that he would push to revise NAFTA to pay more respect to workers, labor issues, environmental issues. Instead, he's about to propose the Pacific Trade Agreement to the Congress, which has been called NAFTA on steroids, in terms of undermining American jobs, allowing higher prices for medicines, under draconian intellectual property rights, basically acceding of U.S. sovereignty to these transnational agreements. So, you know, there's, a, there's just another example. What really bothers me about the Democrats' post-mortem of the election is they're already starting to list the alibis. It's gerrymandering. It's Citizens United and big money in politics if they don't raise big money. It's this, it's that. And while these are important issues, you've got to make sure that you dress them as objects of reform but you don't use them as alibis for your loss, your colossal loss on November 4th to the worst Republican Party in history. But and we're already this seeing... This election has exposed that. This election has exposed those alibis. When you have not just red state senators and gerrymandered House districts, but blue state governors with big built-in advantages losing race after race after race. When you see all that all the money poured in 
on our side, every bit as much as on the other, or in many cases, and nearly as much across the board. The fact of the matter is that it's clear it's not gerrymandering. I mean, gerrymandering is terrible. Voter suppression is terrible. Citizens United is a disgrace. We had bad luck of the draw in the red state Senate races. It's an off year. But there's no getting around the amount of evidence that yesterday provided. What we're doing is not enough. As I said in one of those salon pieces, Democrats can't run forever on the slogan, die slower, vote Democratic. It's not enough just to be better than the extremist Republicans. It doesn't help us to be in an endless feud with Fox News. This discussion ought to be with the American people about real practical solutions to the problems uh, that they face in their lives, uh, which are, in which we face as a society. That's not a discussion Democrats in their present form seem inclined, let alone prepared to have. All I need from you is a good conversation, conversation, cause it gives me sweet inspiration, and to tell you I Never felt this way before I know there is some way today You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, real representative democracy via fairvote.org. Our country's election process is broken, and no one listening to this podcast needed election 2014's mixed results or record low voter turnout to persuade them that our democracy's fundamental tenant could use a tune-up. World War II was raging the last time we had turnout this low, and certainly a lack of trust in the system is contributing to the apathy epidemic. What if we could give American democracy an upgrade? That's the optimistic yet entirely feasible goal of the organization Fair Vote. I think we have a crisis right now with our polarized uh, government. Um, They've circled the wagons. The problems have become uh, considerably worse both in primaries and in general elections. The majority party would go into their conference, the minority party into their conference, and then they'd come out and vote in lockstep. The parties control everything. My name is Chris Novoselic, and I'm the chair of the board of directors for Fair Vote. Reform 2020 is Fair Vote's map to a democracy where every vote counts in every election. Oh, it's never going to happen. I've heard that so many times in my life when I was in a rock band, and we would never imagined that we'd ever even be on MTV, and it happened. So things turn around, and I'm, I'm an optimist. I love Fair Vote in that we're dealing with structural issues. We're talking about multi-member districts. We're talking about ways that women and diverse women get to run. Fair Vote is the only group in the United States pushing for these reforms. And we've been doing so for 21 years. Well, you know, Minneapolis has rate choice voting, and it's been working very well. I mean, think about it. In life... Usually it's not like you like one thing and hate another. It's like you like this one best, you like this one second best, you like this one third. We want the national popular vote for president, and that's important because then instead of having these swing states, then we'll have a truly competitive national election. Well, you know, I think a lot of people don't know that there is no explicit right to vote in the United States Constitution. Well, now, if there were an explicit right to vote, then it would put citizens in a much more powerful position in terms of 
fighting off efforts to suppress the vote. What we want to do, we want to take that power out of their hands and put it in the hands of the voter. And there's a lot of jurisdictions in the United States that use a proportional voting fair representation system. It would make for a much more honest and robust debate. It would mean that we are not sort of having this false dichotomy all the time between the right and the left as if, um, you know, as if there are only two sides to an issue. The results have been very clear that you have much less polarization, much less racial voting, and you get much better representation. According to FairVote.org, their mission, quote, advances systemic electoral reform to achieve a fully participatory and truly representative democracy that respects every vote and every voice in every election. We promote ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting, a constitutionally protected right to vote, a national popular vote for president, and most fundamentally, fair representation voting forms of proportional representation. They've already succeeded in getting enough jurisdictions to pass legislation supporting a popular vote for the president to equal almost two-thirds of the electoral votes needed to win the White House, an accomplishment that makes fair votes' next set of concrete goals seem within reach. Their campaign, Representation 2020, seeks gender parity in elected representation. Women only make up 18% of Congress and hold under a quarter of state legislative seats, a stat that puts the U.S. well behind Ethiopia, Iraq, Afghanistan, China, and Vietnam. We rank 80th in female elected officials, which should be a source of national embarrassment. And the Reform 2020 campaign seeks to end gerrymandering, make voting an explicit constitutional right, bring about a national popular vote for the presidency and uphold voter choice and majority rule through ranked choice, also known as runoff voting. Runoff voting is already implemented in San Francisco and Oakland, California, Portland, Maine, and Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. None of these cities' legislatures fell apart when ballot accommodations were made to make room for third-party and independent candidates with built-in backup selections for cautious voters. Even as a push for reforms nationally moves slowly but steadily, this particular democracy enhancement is one you can demand of your local city councils and state houses. Get involved by supporting Fair Vote's goals for 2020, following fair vote on social media and spreading the word about electoral reform, tracking pending legislation, and signing their petitions. Don't let your anger at the broken system keep you home on future election days. Instead, use it as motivation to make our democracy stronger and fight to reduce apathy by getting us closer to having every vote count. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. If the future of our democracy matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about fair vote via social media so that others in your network can make their votes count too.
My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Last night, uh, it was a Democratic bloodbath. Uh, a lot of Democratic legislators across the country, almost all of them in close races, lost. Uh, but not everyone who was fighting for the right causes in the country lost. Uh, in fact, some of the people who were fighting the hardest won. Who were they? Well, they were people supported by Wolfpack. Wolfpack is uh, the group that has been formed to get money out of politics. We want to pass a constitutional amendment. Now, people are worried, oh my God, the Republicans control the Senate. Uh, and, and the House. Well, on the national level, you should be worried because uh, those guys are uh, making a living out of money in politics. People like Mitch McConnell, who actually love Citizen United and defend it. But there's a lot of Republicans across the country at the state level who don't like uh, money coming into their states, whether it's Bloomberg money, Soros money, or even Coke and Rove money. And uh, at the state level, it turns out you can actually get an amendment without Washington at all, and that's exactly what Wolfpack intends to do. Now, in some states, uh, we've had some good uh, fortune. Well, of course, that fortune was earned through a lot of hard work, including the states of Vermont and California that have already passed a resolution calling for the convention to get us that amendment so that we can end this corruption that 95% of Americans know exists and is and are sick of. So, in Vermont, we had someone help us. It's just a citizen. His name was Dr. Steve Barry. And he was a minister, and um, and he was just a concerned citizen who cared about what was happening in Vermont. We had faced an obstacle there. There were some state legislators who um, were skeptical about a convention and skeptical about this resolution. And we were lucky. Again, luck earned through hard work. One of our uh, workers in New Jersey, Walker Green, uh, one of our leaders there, uh, Along with many other people doing, who were doing a wolf pack attack in order to get this passed in uh, Vermont, I happened to reach Steve Barry, just calling citizens in Vermont, right, and talked him into supporting this resolution. Steve Barry then did a Herculean task of talking his legislators, including Rep- uh, Senator uh, Sears, into actually changing their mind and supporting our resolution, and that's why we won in Vermont. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because you know what we decided. Hey, why not support the good guys? We believe in carrots and sticks, and I'm going to tell you about the sticks in a minute. But in this case, you know, wherever this flag is flown, we take care of our own. So we asked Steve Barry to run for office. Now, facing long odds, you know, in a tight race, very, very tight, as you're going to see in a second. So we decided, hey, you know what? If Steve Barry's got our back, we got his back. We went and worked for him. We went to Vermont. We had volunteers go to Vermont. At the very local level, and Steve Barry, who was a regular citizen who just cared about the issues, is now a state legislator in Vermont. Put one on the board for Wolfpack. 
Then we go to New Hampshire. Well, in New Hampshire, we had a great guy named Tim Smith, who was a state legislator there. Uh, he introduced our resolution. Again, wherever this flag is flown, we protect our own. So Tim Smith is in a tough re-election race. We went. We got volunteers. We got the Wolf Pack to go there. We supported him. Tim Smith re-elected it. Narrow margins. I'm going to show you the margins in a second. But the most interesting case. A guy named Steve Valancourt that I've been telling you about. He decided that he was going to oppose our resolution. And back then, I talked about it when we lost in New Hampshire, honestly, because of Steve Valancourt. Here's me explaining it back then. There's a totally out-of-control Republican representative in uh, New Hampshire. Now, look, there are Republicans on our side in many states, okay, enthusiastically supporting this legislation because they understand that we got to get money out of politics and it's corrupted our democracy. But apparently, Representative Valancourt in New Hampshire is not one of them. So he decided that just before the vote was going to go, that he would do a motion to table the resolution. Okay. Now, when he did that, he said, look, there's a bunch of more important matters pending, and this issue doesn't rise to the level of a priority. Well, defeating Steve Valancourt rose to the level of priority for us when he did that. He wound up affecting the whole Republican Party and killing the legislation. You explain that part here. Now, of course, people like Representative Valancourt don't want to fix the government. They love the broken system. And unfortunately, his fellow Republicans uh, went along with it, and they tabled uh, the resolution. So it was killed. And I said at the end of that video many, many months ago, hey, we might want to do something about this. Watch. The Sig Heil Valancourts are the bad guys of the world. And so when we do good things and when we have progress, I want to celebrate it. And we do on the show. And when we have guys impeding our progress, it's important that they not impede it anymore. He didn't win his election by much last time. And hopefully we'll soon be calling him former Representative Valancourt from New Hampshire. You can go ahead and call him former Representative Valancourt right now. Because we done got him. Do you know what we did? We moved into his district. Literally. The executive director for Wolfpack moved from Maryland, not just to New Hampshire, but to Valancourt's district. Because we made a decision, you come for us. No, 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 we come for you. What did I say when we formed Wolfpack? I said, we're done running. They're not coming for us anymore. We're coming for them. We're not playing around. This is real politics. We came to his house. He was a six-term incumbent. No more. Clean up. Go home. Clean up. Go home. Let me show you how tight these races were. Steve Barry won by just 73 votes. In the cold, both in Vermont and New Hampshire, we sent Wolfpack SEAL Team 6. I'm not kidding. From all across the country, we poured into those states. While no one was looking, while people are worried about corporatist Democrat X versus corporatist Republican Y, we were in there getting the results that we needed. Steve Barry said in his uh, speech after the victory, clearly couldn't have done it without us, and, and we couldn't have done Vermont without him. That's how you get each other's back, okay? Tim Smith won by just 99 votes, but all wins, all because we worked really hard together. And finally, Valancourt, sixth-term incumbent, defeated by 89 votes. Oh, we worked hard. Oh, you should have seen those guys. They went door to door. There were a lot of sticks brought out. 
It was not an accident that Valancourt lost, and he most certainly would not have lost if we didn't have our entire team there. And by the way, Wolfpack members from all across the country calling in. What we do is we get people inside those districts to actually change their minds. You know what that's called? Democracy. That's how you're supposed to do it. I'd like to tell you the last words that former Representative Valancourt heard in his political career. Wolfpack sends its regards. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. And I'd just like to reply to some recent episodes where people talked about Ralph Nader as a spoiler and how if you voted for Nader, it's all Nader's fault that Al Gore lost. I would assert that this is the most undemocratic thing you could possibly say. There's nothing democratic about that. That you, you have to toe the line of the party that is supposedly somewhere in your universe of beliefs and you can't run against them, and you can't vote against, you can't vote for somebody other than them because you are a traitor if you do so. Basically what Ralph Nader was saying is that, you know, these people are so far outside of my universe of beliefs, I can't in good conscience endorse them or run with them. I can't promote them. I can't tell people to vote for them. So I'm going to run to you know, bring these other ideas into the debate. So if we want to really change the spoiler candidate phenomenon and really break uh, money, the first thing we need to do is, A, we need to stop this stupid calculus of we'll only vote for the insurgent candidate for offices where it doesn't matter. So I can vote for the third-party guy for dog catcher, but I won't dare vote for him for Congress, for one. Two, we can put together some ballot measures in a lot of our states to try to enact voting that isn't first past the post so that it takes away the spoiler cost of voting for a third-party candidate. So, for instance, if we have approval voting, you say, yes, I like Al, I like, uh, I like Al Gore and I like Ralph Nader. Or you have ranked voting where you say, I like Ralph Nader, but my next choice down is Al Gore. In, in that particular case, but it, it generalizes. So it, it eliminates spoilers in that case. But to tell people don't vote for the person you want because they might not win and it might, you know, because our system's screwed up, is is basically anti-democratic. If I, if I totally disagree with the candidates and I decide I should run, that's not selfish. That's not insurgent. That's just a matter of... I'm a, uh, a citizen in a democracy that wants to have a different set of ideas than what's on offer. And so I think the criticisms of, of Nader and for the people who vote for Nader are just completely anti-democratic and shame on the people who even say it. You know, shame on you for, 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 <laughs> for telling people that they have to toe the line and they have to take the lesser evil every time. So I appreciate the uh, show and uh, have a nice day. Hi, Jay. This is Ronald in Baltimore. I just heard your recent podcast mentioning voter ID, and I like to call the Republican push for voter ID laws as a solution in search of a problem. But come to think of it, that's not really accurate. 
The problem is participation by non-white, non-male voters in elections. So voter ID can solve that problem. The Republicans, however, have a long-term strategy, something liberals and progressives, I'm sorry to say, never seem to have. The Republican long-term goal is to make it impossible to vote otherwise. The problem for democracy is that disenfranchising any of its citizens, and it surprises me that nobody's pointed this out explicitly, is that if we must obey the law, then we must have a voice in making that law. And I wish somebody would address this problem. I know I'd like to. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Hey, Jay. Uh, this is Mike from Nova Scotia again, and I uh, just want to say I'm very sorry if my imitation of your voice insulted you. Uh, I thought I was just being funny, but after hearing it on your show, maybe it did come off sounding sounding a bit bullyish. But anyway, I just want to tell you I'm probably the biggest fan of your show up here in Nova Scotia, and I've hooked dozens of people to your podcast. So once again, I'm I'm really really sorry if you were offended. I won't do it. I won't do it again. Anyway, just love your show. Keep it up. Okay, bye. Hey, Jay, this is Adam from uh, Tennessee, and uh, I just got done listening to the Street Harasser uh, episode, and wow, this was, it was really a wake-up call. One of the comments you made about, you know, letting a buddy know, it just reminded me of a situation where I was sitting outside with a couple buddies at a restaurant, and this girl comes jogging by, and my buddy, who's actually a cop, he says, how old do you think she is? And my friend and I, the other two of us, we, I said, I don't know, she's probably like 15. And he made out some comment, uh, nothing sexual, just like looking good or uh, keep it up or something like that. And at the time I thought, that's pretty innocent, you know, what's the big deal? But after hearing this episode, it's kind of a wake-up call that this is, she probably heard that 10 times on her run. And, you know, 20, 30 times a week. And especially for somebody that age, where she's already being exposed to it, it's just very disappointing. So I appreciate the episode, and uh, I'm going to be seeing this guy here next week, and we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to try to voice up a little bit more. I feel really bad for these these women who are having to deal with this, and I will do my best to, uh, to make some changes amongst the people I hang out with. Thanks, Jay. Uh, this is William J. Jackson from Washington State calling out of Florida. So, the actress Shoshana Roberts and the video maker Rob Bliss are just added onto the pile of what I, uh, why I can't call myself uh, any of these ideological labels. And in my conversation, my activism, and my behavior, I'm actually the stereotype of the far left, the liberal feminist. But white people keep me from adopting these titles. Uh, you have liberal white Bill Maher calling Michael Brown a thug. You have liberal white uh, Nicole Sandler saying black people shouldn't give their kids weird names because that's why employers throw their applications in the garbage. You have white gay Dan Savage blaming the homophobic Negroes for Prop 8. Now we have Shoshana Roberts and Rob Bliss, who did a great job of remaking Birth of a Nation for liberals. So, Shoshana is an actor, and I don't apply gender to job titles, but one may not have heard of or seen her before, and uh, what we have now. And I bet 2015 will be a busy and prosperous year for her. 
And we have Rob Bliss, who has a background in campaigning for gentrification. The claim is that there were no white males, but too much background noise for them to make the cut at this point. As as long as it's not released, I'm without reason to be convinced that this footage even exists. With the footage that is available for profit, some extra research was done at the hands of writer Chris Moore and the company, and it was found that 15 of the 25 shots were in Harlem. That makes up 59% and of... Uh, of, of the video when 8% is unknown, uh, 20, 21% is in Times Square, 4% in the village, and 8% in the canal. So far, the only logical thing I can see is money. Shoshana and Robert wanted to make money, so in classic white fashion, they went to the lower class coloreds and exploited them for financial gain. And Chank Unger of the Young Turks inadvertently argued that it was logical to do this, stating that you get better film and audio from colored folk than white folk, cause them blacks, they talk real funny, and, and it be amusing. Now, why is it logical to show dangerous coloreds and the, um, and the sexual purity of the white woman in jeopardy of these hyper-regressive inner-city men and uh, not include white males. Well, there's that intersection of white male privilege and the fact that white males are most likely to have the disposable income to give away. So if you don't show white males an image of themselves being the villain, it's logical to assume that they would be more comfortable with making a decision to fork over some coin. I understand that at this point, the white folks see this as a paranoid blackie boo who's just making up stuff. And, well, excuse me, but white people have a long track record for being casually dishonest. So it seems that uh, what the cool kids call Occam's Razor comes into play. So thank you, Robert and Shoshana, for furthering the rights of the white supremacist narrative that I'm a super horny, dangerous rapist that's prowling for precious white victims. Thank you, white feminists. Thank you, white liberals. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I, I gotta say, I was very surprised to uh, open up my you know new pile of voicemails today and found an incredibly small number of messages about the whole uh, religious extremism debate, which is very different from the previous episode where I had, you know, a dozen or more messages on that subject. And this time I had like, I don't know, one or maybe two, and, and neither of them were really challenging anything that I had said, and they were sort of referencing like the original episode itself, and it sounded like the people may, maybe hadn't caught up on the discussion. So... You know, who knows? Maybe, maybe that conversation's over. Uh, maybe it's not, but I, I have a whole lot of great messages to get to, including the ones played today, as you saw. So, uh, you know, keep the messages coming in on anything you like, religious extremism, the election, voting, street harassment, climate change, uh, to name a few of our recent topics, or anything else you like. The number again, 202-999-3991. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations 
donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing Can't see past our own sad stories